This episode of the Real-Time History Podcast is sponsored by Nebula. Subscribe to Nebula to listen to this podcast and watch all our Real-Time History videos earlier and ad-free. You also get access to exclusive historical deep-dive documentaries like our World War II series 16 Days in Berlin and Rhineland 45 on the dramatic and decisive final stage of the Second World War. Sign up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash Real-Time History Podcast for just $30 for an entire year and support this show. Hello everyone, this is Flo. And this is Jesse. Welcome to another episode of the Great War Channel podcast. Today, I mean, not just today, but usually we have special topics on the podcast, but today is a special, special topic, let's call that. Because today is not necessarily just about the history of the Great War, but also how we engage with it. And by we, I actually mean Russians. Yes, um, we covered a whole lot of different stuff from how the First World War was kind of portrayed and understood in the Soviet Union to how that changed when the Soviet Union fell. And then we also talked a bit about popular culture, uh, current days. There's been some prominent movies, but what is all that like in Russia? This is something that struck me when I, when I visited there for the first time in particular. So we had, uh, I invited a, a guest who could tell us a bit about that since uh, Russia is kind of a, culturally speaking, a faraway place uh, for most of us, in addition to geographically speaking. All right. And before we get into it, I just want to highlight that um, we know that a lot of you out there are interested in World War One movies and well or also the war and popular media and for our patreons we actually started something called the world war one movie club where we are going to take a look at for example world war one movies and the first one we watched was called a long engagement and we are going to schedule uh, when we are going to watch the next one and if you want to participate in the one movie club you can become a patreon which is you know that's just one of the perks you can get and as i always say this support on patreon is not just for the perks but it also means that it literally keeps the light on in our studio so thank you for your support and now without further ado here is our interview so hello everyone, I'm here ready to interview our next guest and I'm very excited about this topic as usual, but in this case my Russophilia is going to be given its full head because we have with us today um, Sofia Anisimova, who's a PhD student at St. Andrews University in the UK. And normally she focuses in her academic life on First World War military strategy. But she has uh, some other interests as well, and that's where we want to focus today because that's how I got to know Sophia via Twitter. And uh, that other interest we're going to focus on today is the First World War and popular culture in Russia. So thank you very much, uh, Sophia, for joining us today. 
Thank you very much for having me here. I'm very excited as well. Good. Um, all right, then let's get, as they say in the UK, stuck in straight away. And I want to start off with the traditional uh, lead-off question in the podcast, which is, how did you get into this topic? What drew you to the idea of uh, looking at popular culture in Russia about the First World War? So thank you, Jesse. Uh, as you said, I'm normally working on Russian military strategy in the First World War and the coalition. Um, and it's my formal academic topic. But at the same time, when I started my PhD, uh, even actually even before I started my PhD, I thought how I can engage with more people, with more Russian-speaking people uh, on the topic of the First World War. And then I decided to run a Telegram channel because uh, at the time, and it was it's still, Telegram is a very popular social network uh, in Russia, which allows you to post uh, quite large texts, but you don't get comments. Uh, so that's, uh, and um, uh, speaking of the audience in Telegram is quite different from Facebook of contacted. So I decided to, uh, and people my age are more likely to, to read Telegram. So I thought I'll do it in Telegram. And then before launching it, and whilst doing it, I was researching and reading lots of um, information about first of all on different Russian social networks and popular culture in general. And uh, that's how I got interested in how I got to know things I know now, but I want to say that I'm coming here with a perspective more of a participant in, in the, in the pop or in the popular culture rather than a neutral observer, because I am, well, the telegram channel is not really big, but it's going to still contribute to that you know, that field of, of first of all, representation on, on social media in, in Russian speaking world. Okay. So you're a fish in the water, yeah. uh, checking it out, which gives different kinds of insights sometimes, I think from the sort of neutral observer viewpoint. Um, so we got a question uh, from one of our listeners because initially I was going to start off then by asking, okay, well, let's talk about, give us an overview of First World War, uh, state of the First World War in Russia today. But we got a question from one of our listeners about the Soviet period. And so I thought we'd slip that in before we get to today's Russia. And I think it was Neil, if I remember correctly, asked... Um, Norman Stone, famous historian Norman Stone, wrote that the Soviet government emphasized the story of the Russian Civil War far more than the story of the First World War under the Tsarist regime, which is true, unless it was within the context of the revolution or the Civil War and could be sort of looked at in a negative light. How has that changed since the uh, great change and the fall of communism in the early 90s? Uh, uh, I think it's a great question because it's allow it allows us to look at how sort of this narrative of the First World War in Russia developed because um, Soviet Union, as a matter of fact, did not completely destroy the memory of the First World War. And it was referring to the First World War indeed in relation to the Civil War and the Revolution, but also very often in relation to the imperialist regime because the, the First World War was used as an example of imperialist war and uh Till this day, in some school textbooks in Russia, you can find this cliche about First World War being an imperialist war in this left kind of meaning rather than the war of empires, but like it's imperialist war that was um, kind of which the, the empires are responsible for. And, uh, and every 
first of first second of August for a very long time in Soviet Union, there were commemorations of this beginning of imperialist warfare, at least in print. So there are actually currently there are few articles that examine this um, imperialist dimension uh, of the first world narrative in the Soviet Union. But this was the official narrative. At the same time, there was personal narrative uh, of the first world war in the families of people who survived the first war and. My family can be an example of that because my great-grandfather fought in Galicia. Interesting. Uh, in, in the First World War. And uh, we have a picture of him uh, with his uh, comrade, well, not comrade, with his uh, fellow servicemen uh, in, uh, in uniforms and uh, for a very long time. And, uh, and that picture was brought by my granddad who moved from the tiny village that he was from to, to Moscow. And uh, when I was asking... Um, uh, what what is this uniform? And he said, "Oh, the the great granddad fought in the war in 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 the first world war." And I said, "Who's that? Who's that? War was against?" And he said, "You know, I'm not really sure." And so for a very long time, when I was a young child, I was uh, persuaded that granddad fought with Napoleon because first world war didn't have any connotations for me. And uh, there were two big wars, war against Napoleon and war against Hitler, obviously. And then the first war came into picture. And I think that's partially because of this personal narrative of the first world war that existed in the 1930s and in the 1940s. When the veterans died, it died off. So I'm the generation that never met a living First World War veteran, so I never get to hear this story. But my granddad, for example, he's now old. He didn't remember that till I actually interviewed him in detail. But his dad told him the stories of the First World War, and there were other people in the same village who served in the war. So there was this kind of local uh, thing going on. Uh, I wouldn't say it was big, but it was still there. So there were these two kind of lines of commemoration in, in the in the first half of the 20th century in Russia. And then, of course, the veterans died off and uh, the war in the, in the late uh, Soviet Union kind of was mummified into this imperialist, dry imperialist narrative. And uh, when the, obviously the Soviet Union fell, this narrative was questioned. And so the, and, uh, uh, the narrative uh, was questioned mostly on the civil war side so there was now in the in the in the late 80s early 90s now not the reds not the bolsheviks were good guys but the white guys became the good guys because they were royalists they did their duty they were loyal so these qualities were portrayed as as good qualities as being um, as being consistent so sort of like presented them with lots of integrity and that narrative kind of spilled over to the first world war because those who served in the first war served in the civil war as well so they were the, the officers or mostly officers were the examples of true warrior and true servicemen so sort of idealization if you want of that um uh, of that image and Idealization in in many ways of the first war as well as the last war of the empire, last war of the Tsar, and last war of the Tsarist empire. Actually, just a quick note uh, because this narrative is very linked with the with the monarchist royalist narrative in Russia. So very often when you go on social networks, like these communities of people who are talking about first world war and who trying to project uh, a certain image of the first world war to the public, they often also project an image of that of the of the of positive image of Nicholas II, which is not a given 
and it's not a given in, in modern Russia as well. So there are many narratives surrounding his figure, but there is this big monarchist narrative, um, which, and given that he was, uh, the, the, the royal family became, uh, they became saints. So sort of like this monarchist nar- narrative that also kind of overlaps with, the, with, with this religious narrative because they took uh, martyrs, death for for Russia. So lots of people, lots of this monarchists and lots of these people who believe in this narrative believe that the First World War could have been won if not for the Bolsheviks. So they're blaming the Bolsheviks and the whites and the whites and the, the officers and the, the royal family, they became the goodies and the the, 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 the reds, they became uh, the bad ones. But um, at the same time, there is a second narrative that is a sort of, it is the, very similar, but it's at the same time, uh, there are noticeable differences in terms of how the first war is portrayed, and I think it's very recent narrative. And this is a narrative that, great, that was created after the centenary began. This is so the, 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 it's the narrative of heroes. So all of those who fought were heroes, and this is the same narrative that Russian state and government use uses for the Second World War. So they're using the same patterns, but they're talking about different events in different topics. So uh, modern day Russia, so and uh, how it changed because, well, obviously they, it's multi narrative story of the war. So there is no one uh, sort of like national story of the war at the moment. There are competing narratives, and it's very interesting to observe. As 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 a historian and as a person who's in it, of course, yeah, no, that's a, a fascinating sort of quick summary and bird's eye view of uh, nearly a century of of collective uh, memory. Let's say, maybe we can uh, talk a bit about the more recent years, and uh, of course. I'll leave out the the part that you left out in detail anyway, which is that I think the currently the hottest topic regarding um, late Russian imperial history online is Tsar Nicholas II's backside, which has become viral. Uh, yeah, I did see that. <laughs> half the internet side, <laughs> um, and it's very interesting actually that on Twitter. It was promoted by people who are linked with a project that were funded by Russian government. Interesting. So lots of this is promoted and paid for. And actually, that kind of comes to my, um, introduces my next thought, that lots of this imagery in lots of this um, uh, First World War narratives and memories and Civil War narratives as well, um, they're still part of the political bo- battleground in modern-day Russia. Um, uh, so, and lots of the, just quickly to finish my thought from the, from the previous question, um, is that, um, this narrative of the heroes came with the creation of two proxy government NGOs or quangos, as they sometimes called uh, in Britain and there's Russian society for military history and Russian historical society. And so the government invested lots of money for them to orchestrate the centenary, specifically the Russian society for military history. They did lots of monuments, lots of commemorations, published quite a few books. Um, some of them quite ridiculous because I've seen one that was, published on the ages of the Russian Society for Military History that was saying that the, the Jewish conspiracy orchestrated the First World War. Oh, that's great. That they Later then, they denied that it was uh, they doing, they're saying that people used a uh, brand illegally, so to publish that. Um, 
but they did publish lots of um, memoirs of the white soldiers. So, so there is this narrative um, kind of heroes and officers as well. And uh, it's very important that they uh, this centenary of the first war, there was so much money invested in it to throw shadow on the centenary of the revolution. Because if for the Bolsheviks the revolution was so important, for the modern uh, government uh, in Russia, revolution is a threat. So therefore, the centenary of the revolution and of the civil war was swept under the carpet, whilst the centenary of the first world war, when Russia until 1917 was performed, well, as a historian, I would say it performed all right as a as a as a as a as a person who's a you know as a Russian like is if I were a Russian patriot like present himself on the internet, I would say they performed very well and they would have won unless for the Bolsheviks. So, um, so they fo- focused on that to not focus on revolution. That was a very conscious decision. That's uh, yeah, that's very interesting. I noticed. Um, when I've been in Russia the first time, at least, I was quite surprised to see a few statues in that direction because I hadn't been so attuned to the, the very recent sort of shift um, until I was there. And all of a sudden, I'm like, wait, that's a statue of Stalipin? How is that? You know, and that sort of thing. Who was the minister in uh, one of the late Tsarist governments? But in any case, let us shift uh, focus now to the popular culture a little bit more. And let's, uh, let's talk about films because you tweeted recently using mentioning some examples of a few more prominent films that have come out in, in recent years that are set during the First World War. And those are, oh, what are the translations now in English? Uh, Russian Boy, I think was one of them. Russian Youth. Russian Youth, yeah. Well, maybe you can tell us. There's one about the Battalion of Death, and there's one about this famous attack of the dead at the fortress of uh, a Soviets um, in 1914. So, so talk to us about these three kind of prominent films that have come out in recent times and what they, why they're important. Um, so, um, before that, um, even in the 90s and into the 2000s, with the interest of the first war was rising, but it was not big enough to produce uh, films. So there were a few, but they were not big, really. There was one TV show and there was maybe it. Uh, but here we have uh, three films that came out in this during centenary years, uh, four plays in Moscow. I, I went to see all of them um, and I still dream of writing an article about that because it was quite interesting to, to see. And um, so it was... So first of all, became a part of this popular culture landscape. And these three, fil- three films that you mentioned, they, they're quite different. Uh, and they were funded from different sources. So they present a little bit different narratives. There was this battalion film. It's called The Battalion. It talks about the story of the battalion of death of Maria Bachkarova. There was a unit of women. They were sent to fight for about, I think they fought for about a few weeks uh, at the, the front line. And later was made into a TV show, and it was show because they did the the director's cut was quite long, so they did the TV show uh, small um, out of it, and they showed it on federal TV. And this was funded by the Fond Kino. This is a cinema foundation, so this is a foundation that was created by Russian government to support the arts, specifically the cinema. And it presents a sort of a heroic narrative, but Actually, and I think I, I hope I would be crucified uh, for saying that I quite liked it. 
well because it's it's very it's not very detailed uh, it's not necessarily overly historically accurate but it gave a very clear you know image of the war very recognizable image of the war that didn't exist in russia really before that so if you see if you take the film that's called uh, merry christmas or joyeux noël that was made in 2005 in in europe it gives you a very clear image of first of all it's very stereotypical yes but it's very it's easy to understand it's easy to grasp uh, grasp and it gives you a certain idea of, of the war and and certain idea of our idea of the war today and battalion was the same thing it was they had it had a sort of a morale that those who stay loyal to their country no matter what the government is are the good ones so they were those who are ready to betray it they are the bad ones so that this is this was easy but at the same time the imagery the landscape the uniforms it was very understandable and that's why i liked it because it gives us a certain not to say the whole feminist Thing, but it was it was very clear and very understandable, and it was just, it, it's a good popular film. Russian Youth is a tiny, small budget film made. It's a debut film uh, of um, um, of a, a student of a prominent Russian director called Sakurov, and the name of the student is Alexander Zolotuhin. And um, I would have watched it anyway because I do enjoy Russian independent cinema a lot. But and it, it speaks in a very uh, I love the film. It's on Amazon now. You can rent it and watch it. I do recommend it because it's very, it's one of the most Russian expressions on the war they have seen in a while. Because even Battalion and also as they influenced definitely by the this Western image of the First World War whilst Russian youth. And he said specifically that he didn't watch anything. He didn't want anything to influence him. And it's very melancholic, very Russian observation of a small person life uh and the war works as a background it's not on the war it's about this boy who, who lost his eyesight in in the war and then he was kind of reintegrated into fighting units and he became the listener so the, uh, the russian youth was the the final title of the film but the working title was uh the listener the person who listens to the to the um, planes coming in, so and it's just the, it's not it's not about the story. It's about the visual and the sound effect because uh, it's a classical set in the background of classical music. So I do really recommend it. It's quite it's it's very artsy, I have to say, but it's very it's very it's very good uh, expression. So this was funded by independent small. So small, not so not a lot of money. Actually, very historically accurate in terms of the the numbers on the, on the shoulder straps and this this little bit. I really enjoyed because they put some thoughts into it and it was very nicely done. So I want to ask you just just a moment because uh, you qualified the film as very Russian. Now, uh, to some of our listeners, and I would also be curious as as to. Uh, perhaps our different versions of what that might mean about a film. I always think of Russian arc when I think of a very Russian film. <laughs> but Oh, yes. It's the same guy. Sakurov is the guy who made Russian arc. Oh, well, there you go. Okay, you see. But um, yeah, explain to us what is a very Russian uh, film uh, in, in that sense to you? Well, I mean, I mean, more like a very Russian expression and style because it's this... Um, Sakurov likes it as well. It's slow and melancholic examination of a 
life of a very small person and it's a very it's a very big topic in russian classical literature looking at someone who's just you know who's not he seems to be not significant and he called it russian youth because it's it's a very russian story of 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 a of a, of a I think of a, of a child who ran off from, from a village. And so he was trying, and he's surrounded by men in the trenches, Russian men. And he's trying to look at this life of Russian men in this crucial period of time. And I think, and they're not professional actors. And the boy is not a professional actor. They found him in the orphanage somewhere. And their faces, their expressions, their behaviors very Russian and the way that he's not judging them he's observing them and he is accepting them as they are and he likes them the, the camera likes them the director likes them it's very I wouldn't say they're likable but they it just may like the way they artistically film them they, they, they make you like them and I think it's a very um Russian intellectual and very in very in very traditional Russian literature to like them not because Russian lots of Russian intellectuals would judge everyone else who's not an intellectual and would uh, portray them as this horrible bears from the villages. I mean, I'm, I'm joking, of course, but there is this rift uh, between intelligence and everyone else, and this is a person who's not who's not trying to judge, and this is very I appreciated that a lot. All right, so we have we have the battalion, which is the state-funded. Uh, you know, people should stick to the country no matter what the state of the government is, which I suppose is also a useful message for the current government. Then we have the sort of independent, quote unquote, very Russian uh, uh, Russian boy film, and then the third sort of uh, more prominent film uh, from recent years is the one about this siege of, uh, of the fortress uh, in 1914. So tell us a bit about that film. This film, the, uh, it's called Attack of the Dead on Soviets. So th- this was made in 2018. It's a short film and it was released online on YouTube. Um, it was uh, done independently, but it was funded by a game design company. So uh, an online um, game design company called Wargaming, and they do World of Tanks. If I'm not uh, if I'm not wrong, and um, so it's very different uh, from the other two films because it's very historically accurate. They did the best they could to make it look as accurate as they could. The shoulder straps, the colors of the uniforms, um, the the little details of the uniforms, the little details of the trench life, I think they tried to do it as correct as they could. I think there are limitations um, in terms of um, how correct you can make it whilst also filming it. I can accept that, but I think it's uh, as good as 1917 in many ways. And... um, uh, so it's it's just it's a story of this one attack, and there is not much um, plot going on. There is this attack. There are a few people who are stuck in the trenches. The attack is particularly bloody, and I think this is there was a sort of a, a nod towards the wargaming audience. Uh, so it does look a bit like a, like a, like um, an on, a, an online game, uh, but I think it's not it's not heroic at all. It's not heroic. It's not very artsy, and it's. Uh, 
on the very subject that they're talking about, on this uh, presumable uh, attack of the people who were gassed and then they still, you know, try to counterattack the enemy. And um, I think since it was independent and the, the wargaming is a Belarus company, not even Russian one, um, is this middle of this intelligence expression on the war, they use it as a background to, you know, observe Russian men and their lives. And this heroic narrative, this is a historical narrative because there is a lot of, I guess, demand for, to know more what the war was like. I think this demand exists and not imperialist war, not the, uh, not the, you, you know, the something that led to the revolution eventually, but just the war. And I think it's a, it's a commendable effort. And I know that they want to, it was very popular. So I think it's one of the most popular. They did a few short films on different military conflicts, this um, war gaming uh, company. But I think this was one of the most popular ones. And they now trying to source funding for the long film. So this is for the, for the, for the full meter. So I think uh, it would be very interesting to, to, to see. And I would very much enjoy that. Um, wow, that sounds like uh, a lot of historians, traditional historians, let's say, for lack of a better word, are going to be rolling in their graves and or gnashing their teeth, the ones that are that are still among us, uh, at the idea that a video game company is, you know, producing uh, historically based culture that is perhaps in a way uh, closer to a more neutral uh, presentation of the of the whole thing but I, I that i think says a lot about the recent developments in popular culture and of course you know we at the great war team are very attuned to how much uh, video game culture plays into people's sparking people's interest uh, for these kinds of things um you mentioned in 1917 which was released in in Russia, and how was it uh, how was it received there? What's the what was the kind of the, how does this popular differing popular narratives that exist in Russia how do they then interact with a Western film like 1917? So uh, 1917 and They Shall Not Grow Old were both released in Russia pretty much at the same time because I think it was later than in in, in Britain, uh, and I think they got a fair amount of attention. So lots of people went to see them and uh, I've seen lots of reviews on online and I obviously was asked multiple times by friends and not friends, just random people online to, to give my, uh, my judgment. Uh, so, uh, and I, th- and actually Joyeux was also shown in Russia. So all of these films, they make it to Russia. Lots of European films uh, are being shown in Russia much more than in the UK, surprisingly. But, um, and I think that does not, so it makes First World War definitely more popular. It's a good film. It's a very watchable film. It's an entertaining film at the same time. I'm speaking of 1917. So it makes it popular and people want to know more about it. And then they go online and lots of the content that they get is either this patriotic narrative, which can repel a certain amount of people, or they get the Western narrative. Lots of people speak English. They go and look into First World War online and they read about it in English. That's how I learned about the First World War. Lots of what I learned started with reading about First World War, reading English books about First World War, not Russian ones. And um, so they get this visual impression from the West. And uh, I think this interest 
um, that came during the centenary it spilled over into Russia, but it spilled in a very interesting Western way. So also people understand what the trenches were like in the Western front, and they do not really understand what the fighting was like in the East. And um, uh, I think that's partially Soviet Union, partially to blame for that, because lots of remarks book, All Quiet in the Western Front, is extremely popular. It's the book that to go to. If you go to the online and in Russian, you Google what books to read on the first word, that will be the one that will come up. And I think the second and the third one will be Death of a Hero by Aldington, which is not that popular in the UK, but is one of the basics on the first world war in Russia. And uh, that's why people are very, they're not surprised to learn about the trenches. They're interested to learn about it more. What they do understand that there were some trenches on the Eastern Front as well. So I think that's the effect that the film produce into Russian popular culture. And which is one fun fact that um, I, I told you already about a few plays that were made during the centenaries in Moscow theatres. But one of the plays was called 1914, and it was a cabaret version of the First World War outbreak. And there were French and Germans. And that's it. There were no Russians or no British. It's a very Western narrative of uh, of the first war that was presented there. It was uh, interesting to watch. And worst of all, no Austro-Hungarians. Oh yes, of course. This is uh, this is uh, <laughs> definitely uh, unacceptable. Actually, especially because Russia was very a lot of fighting was happening versus Austria-Hungary. This is also what people do not always realize, or against Turkey. And this is very so. This is. Um, and I think what, what the why so Russians understand what Western Front was like uh, well, and I think it's one of the reasons why the story of the Russian expeditionary force that you talked about with Gwendal Piaget here uh, is very popular. It's extremely popular topic, and I mean, comparing like to the other topics within First World War, we're not talking Second World War, we're not <coughs> talking um, <coughs> maybe Civil War or some other. Like all Napoleonic wars, uh, 1812, 1813, uh, and so on. But within First World War, this is very popular. It's the story that I hear about a lot, that I worked on myself. And yes, it's something people know about. So, sticking with the theme of films for the moment, but hopping. Uh, back in history, we did have another question from a listener, uh, from Hugh, who, if I remember correctly, is from a fellow Canadian. Um, and he refers to that very famous early film, The Battleship Potemkin, as it's called in English, Potemkin, I believe, uh, in Russian, though you can, you can correct me there. Um, he asks how that film, which had such a, a big cultural significance for such a long time, is perceived now in sort of post-communist Russia, right? It was a classic revolutionary film for those who, who may not know. And uh, what's what's the view on it now, if it is even still significant? Yeah, so I, I, I don't want to disappoint here, but it's not really a big thing anymore. So people my age, unless they specifically go and watch it, they watch in terms of uh, cinema history, because it's a very important piece in cinematic history and how they... Sh- 
filmed it and the last you know the last image of the ship kind of coming at you but um it's not it's not it's a silent film that's one of its problems so it's not even shown uh on tv uh, but there was another film uh called chipaev and it was made in 1932 and it was already a silent film so it was it's still around and it's shown on tv uh, i never watched it Accidentally, I watched it specifically. I went and watched it because it influenced a lot how we about um, our ideas of the civil war, how people looked like, what they dressed like, what they did, because it was extremely popular. This is like a brand civil war film that is still around, and later films that were also influenced by it. Uh, but Eisenstein's imagery, of course, influenced our imagery of the revolution and the civil war, and lots of people. People are persuaded that there was a, the, the, the Bolsheviks were storming the Winter Palace and they were climbing uh, the, the gates of the Winter Palace um, in uh, October 1917. And this is the image from the film October. And this is what Eisenstein completely made up. So there was, um, uh, how to say it's not scrummage, but like there was a sort of some uh, yeah skirmishes perhaps there were, there were there were some skirmishes, but there wasn't a proper assault on the gates of the of the winter palace. So these films are important in in the long term, but in the sh- like in 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 the modern situation, people rarely refer to them. I see. Just in case any of our listeners are wondering, by the way, um, Chepayev was this, you know, heroic figure made into a heroic figure from the Civil War. He was a, an officer on the red side. And I think he was killed in September 1919 in the east, fighting against Kolchak's uh, forces as they were being sort of defeated. Um, just for a reference point, um, that's part of the significance uh, of that movie as well, is that it contributes to this heroic figure of Chapaev. Yeah, right? and uh, the characters of the film, they became uh, the, the characters of the folk culture. Lots of Russian jokes, lots of what they called in Russia anecdotes, but they jokes. Uh, they picture Chapayev and his friend Petka, and they. Yes, yes, I've even heard some. Yeah, and this is the, they, they, they're very popular. They're still around. So this is this how important Chapayev was, and mostly because it was it had silent. So Chapayev lives on in Russian jokes. Don't forget that, folks, in case you're ever there and need to uh, get on good terms with the, your fellow Russian train passengers to Siberia or what have you. Now, for the final uh, little segment here of our of our podcast today, I wanted to take us into the area specifically of internet pop culture, and I want essentially I thought of asking you in particular about this one instance of it this this calendar character that has come uh, come out who's a sort of first world war German soldier in the form of a mouse. But um, tell us a bit about a bit about that. But then maybe throw in any other highlights uh, that you've discovered of internet pop culture related to all this. When 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 you describe it uh, with with words, it really sounds sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? Unusual, I would say at least. So uh, a German soldier. <laughs> uh, 
picture is in Baos, he's, he's wearing German uniforms. It is, it is quite funny. So it was, it's part of this um, internet culture, uh, and in Russian, Russian internet is called Runet in, in Russia. Um, and it has distinct, distinctive trends. They're quite different from the rest of the world. And there were these funny short poems that were very popular in early the 2000s, I guess. And there was a guy, he was an artist, and he was writing these poems, and he was like doing some pictures online on, on LiveJournal. So LiveJournal was very popular in Russia, even though it wasn't as popular in the US. But it was a very popular platform for intelligence to share their thoughts. Now they all moved to Facebook. So Facebook in Russia are now for all the intelligentsia people, professors and so on, and journalists to, you know, to complain about Russian government. And this is kind of the thing where, what my mum reads. So she reads Facebook, I read Telegram. So it's the age difference. So this was born on this live journal blog. He uses German words that are transliterated into Russian and he's making funny um, poems of it. And he made 12 poems for different months uh, of the year and he made a calendar out of it and I think and the first time he made it he used First World War soldier First World War German soldier but it was a sort of like a generic soldier with the uh, uh, steel helmet on and I think he decided to change it into a more recognizable uniform. So next year, so that the calendaren, that's how it's called, appeared in 2015 and it's still around. So he does a new one every year and he changed the, the uniform on this mouse soldier uh, to a more recognizable one with a pickelhaube. So you can, so you can definitely see it's not second world war soldier. And it was a big problem. Um, why he chose First World War, I literally have no idea. Uh, why he chose German soldier, I can get, get, I guess, a more clear idea. Because first, German accent in Russian sounds funnier than French. <laughs> sure. That's common knowledge, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> this is, there is an image of the French uh, soldiers escaping Russia over Berezina. And there is a common joke. So when you go out uh, in winter you wear like a big scarf and you you wear lots of clothes that people can say you look like a frenchman like a frenchman <laughs> escaping russia in napoleonic times yeah uh, uh, yes yes in in 19 in 1812 but this this the joke goes around today so 300 years later it is still around uh, people rarely say you look like a german because it's the loss of connotation about german uh, soldiers in Second World War in Russia. It's very painful till this day. Uh, people are still around who lived through it, and it's very like people don't really say that a lot. But I mean, maybe as a jokey way sometimes, but I think it's less less common. So um, uh, so but at the same time, so he he wanted to to pick someone, so a very anti-Russian figure, and there was this German soldier. And to make it funny, someone's because it's a calendar. It's not political. It's about Russian weather. So he wanted to pick someone who's suffering from Russian weather and who's not Russian. So he picked a German soldier. So he and he, but he had to find a more neutral figure. So he picked a First World War uniform of a German soldier, and that's how it came around. Uh, I wish I could interview him. I never had the time, but I think now it would be very interesting to um, to to have a chat with him with the, with this artist called Sabachki. It's a very 
odd uh, name, but uh, it's translated as doggies into Russian. So, uh, and sabachki instead of ch is a separate Russian letter he uses for. This is something from early 2000s, like some, someone from the internet culture of my childhood. So, and um, um, so it, it is quite popular. It's a quite popular jokey thing. And I don't think people realize it's a first world soldier because I saw it honestly many times till I actually clicked and realized Oh my God! This is a pickle habit. It's a first war soldier. This is what this is what he did, and um, and it's very curious. Just a curious fact. Something I discovered uh, on the internet, and this is people recognize it. People hundred percent saw it, but they never saw it or reflected about it on it as a first world war thing, as a first world war related thing. So that's that's why I decided to talk about it on Twitter, and that's how you learned about it as well. Indeed. And I went to the website, but they don't have a 2021 calendar yeah. yet, or I was ready to click <laughs> buy. But we'll see. Maybe maybe they'll come up with one uh, yet. Um, right. So we have now run the gamut from the very big picture of, you know, historical collective memory in the Soviet Union, in Russia, then how that got expressed in some... Uh, important films, more recent films, to the odd and unpredictable ways of German First World War Pickelhaube wearing mouse calendars. And um, I had a great time. I want to thank you, uh, Sophia, for joining us today and giving us this sort of window because obviously I feel, and I, I suppose I'm not the only one, that you know, cultural understanding is not a strong point between uh, Russia and Europe and North America. So I hope that um, that we've given our listeners, that you've given our listeners primarily, a little bit of a, of a window onto what's happening in, in Russia, which is uh, often considered so mysterious and so on. But uh, yeah, thanks very much for joining us. And if people are interested in this topic, how can they more about it uh, through you? Oh, so I have a Twitter account, so I try to, um, and I tweet in English specifically because uh, Twitter is my way of reaching to uh, English-speaking audience. And I have a Telegram channel in Russian, so uh, to talk to uh, to talk more to Russian-speaking audience. And I'm trying to do quite a few of engagement, uh, like this Twitter takeover or like this podcast to talk about it because I think this with centenary going on there is more interest to it and there is a chance to to reach out to people so uh if you have any questions you can always find me and contact me i will be very happy to answer and to talk about russia in the first world all right thanks again sofia and uh we will have to have you back someday in the future when the next big russian first world war blockbuster comes out perhaps i hope when the also will will come out in a, in a long longer yes. version all right all right